Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is sponsored by Hoosier Devil, supporting and promoting roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, who incidentally is one of the hardest working people I know, Hoosier Devil offers a variety of services including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit the team on social media at HoosierDevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Hoosier Devil. Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. The unmistakable music of banjo master J.D. Crow has shaped a generation of bluegrass musicians. His seminal band, The New South, was known for taking mainstream songs and making them bluegrass favorites, as well as updating many classics of the genre. Throughout his career, his lineups have carried a who's who of bluegrass heavyweights. Here in part one of a two-part interview, Daniel Mullen sits down with this Bluegrass Hall of Famer to talk frankly about his journey and where he thinks bluegrass music is headed, or at least where he would like to see it go. His opinion is a strong one as he talks about ingenuity, work ethic, creativity, and grit. You'll hear some road tales, too, about storied bandmates like Jimmy Martin and Tony Rice. Let's pull up a chair with Daniel and J.D. Crow at J.D.'s Kitchen Table near Lexington, Kentucky. course your career started with jimmy martin the king of bluegrass what are some uh some lessons that you learned from jimmy that you applied to your role as a band leader with the new south not to do some of the things he did (laughs) (laughs) no no i mean i love jimmy dearly uh he did he jimmy like marty stewart phrased this phrase he used he was a three-chord genius really and I mean chord of guitar. You take him out of three chords, he was lost. He didn't know anything else. He didn't want to know. That was his style. And he did it the best. You know, one time he was the best rhythm player at every stage. And I was lucky to be in that range, that time period to where he was. You know, he made you want to play. What what do you think made the, the, the chemistry of, of you and Jimmy and Paul so special? Because I guess at that time, uh, Jimmy probably didn't have the style he wanted. And when I joined him, and then after Paul came in, see, I joined Jimmy in 1956. Uh, Paul came in in 1957. And and you were how old? I was uh, 19 at that point. But I'd worked with Jimmy before, yeah, yeah. years ago, when I was still in school, you know, really learning. That's when you got a real education, right? Yeah, really, that's <laughs> you, true. You've got more education with Jimmy than you did at school, probably. That's true, yes. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's when it started because Paul and I, see, Paul was writing a lot of songs. Well, they were new. Well, we would work those songs out. Jimmy liked what he was writing. So we would work the songs out the way we did them, the way Jimmy liked them, and the way the song goes. We would work all the breaks out. So that whole time period, we were Jimmy. We was creating different sounds, different songs, different styles of, you know, of playing. And I think that's why it was so successful. 
in and in those early eras there was such a, a fascination with, with Flatten Scruggs and the Stanleys and Monroe. It was really important for Jimmy to, to oh, yeah. establish his own identity. That's exactly right. And he knew that. And he told, you know, that's what he always preached to us. We can't sound like someone else. And he was right. You know. I remember you telling me that when you first went to work with uh, with Jimmy, you were so fascinated with Earl Scruggs. Oh, yeah. And, and Jimmy was the one that, that, that pushed you into expanding your picking and, and doing well, something really, different. Yeah, he would mention, say, look, he says, uh, you know, he says, if Earl Scruggs pick with me, he'd have to change his style of picking. And that, you know, that hit me when he said that. You know, and I realized, well, and it didn't fit as far as, now he would have made it fit, of course, but the style was a little different. The groove in the music was a little different. And that was by design. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that that's something that might be lacking from today's bluegrass? It is. It is? I'd be honest, today, because anymore I don't listen to a lot anymore, but what I have to listen to is I don't hear any, I, I don't know, I, I, the feel of the music is not there to me. It's not a, not a soul in it it used to have. You know, uh, there's some great pickers out there. Uh, you know, uh, there's a good bands, but they just don't say anything. It doesn't If I can't feel what they're doing, then something's not right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the way I look at that. Do you think that that might be something that is inhibiting the, the growth of bluegrass to outside audiences? I think one thing that's inhibiting bluegrass music is the media. The media? is a big part of it. You mean... I'm talking about lack, overall. Lack of media exposure or yeah. or inaccurate media coverage? Both. Both. Yeah. You know, but as you know, back, I remember when I was with Jimmy Martin back in the late 50s, early 60s, Jimmy's record, when he was on Decca Records, and this was like 1958, uh, 59, in that time period, we were at the Louisiana Hayride. Jimmy had, uh, his records were played on the same program as Ernest Tubbs and Lefty Frizzells and Farron Young and yep. Ferlin Husky, all those guys. Jimmy's records and Flat Scrub, they were all played the same. It was called Hillbilly Music. And that's what it was. And, uh, it was going good. Jimmy was no, a number five bestseller for Decca Records at one time, and that was a, that was a major label. That was a major label, yes, it was. Yeah. And so, see, for that reason, because we were different. And, and you said what? You said fifty eight, fifty nine, sixty. So this is after Elvis has already come oh, out. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Was he was he at the Hayride at that time no, too? Not yet. No, no. Okay. Uh, he had done left. He had done left. We didn't okay. get there until 58. Okay. So he so was he, there in 54, 53 and 4. Yeah. Okay. See, so, uh, yeah, he had, but he because left, there's such a, he there, left, that left a heck of a trail to follow. Yeah. There's such a, you know, a, a trail about how bluegrass took such a big hit with rock and roll. And that is true. But the fact that Jimmy was selling that many records yes. post Elvis right. speaks to proper, ex, proper exposure right. can make up for a lot. And plus, see, that's when all the DJs, they were playing. But see, something happened. 
that really closed it down when they separated the music. I think that hurt it instead of helped it. It helped it to a certain extent, but I think it hurt it to more in the worst extent as far as the coverage because they stopped playing it. You know, it got in its own category. And then the DJs that played top 40 country, if you wasn't in that, you didn't get played. And it just got worse. Do you think that they did it mainly just because by that time there was such a, the sounds were starting to become so different that it was easier to segment, even though it did hurt bluegrass? I think bluegrass it was like stayed in, they kept it in the same category as when it was hillbilly music. Is what I think, and it never got out of that. And I think a lot of it was due to some of the musicians themselves. Some of them didn't want it to change. Well, you can't do that. You've got to change a little bit. See, and there, that's and that's my point there. If you go back and listen to a lot of groups, they're still back there. Yeah. They never changed. Even today, you know, see, you 60, 70 that. years after 19, after uh, Bill and Lester and Earl hit the stage of the Ryman, they're still stuck. stuck yeah, and I love that. I mean, that's great. Yeah. But you can't stay in one spot. Why, why do you think it's significant for bluegrass to be able to expand outside of its own little world, its own little bubble, whether it's into country or more mainstream? Everything has to expand. If it stays the same, it dies. And we all know that. Yeah. Even though it still is good, but everything has to move. Yeah. And it has to move a little toward improvement, if you want to use that word. But musically, I mean, and people, the younger people have different ideas. Yeah. You know, they can take older material and revamp it and make it into something you know, they like to do it the way they like to do it. Yeah. And and that's what's good. You, you have to be an innovator yeah. to be a little different. You have to go out on a limb, take the chance, which a lot of people don't want to do that, you know, but that, you have to. That's something you were so good at, both making new material sound bluegrass but also taking older material making it sound brand new yeah that's something you did throughout your entire career um do you think that was a key to your success probably as far as whatever it was yeah. <laughs> you know uh but i think reason why i did that i've always my first ambition to play music an instrument was electric guitar and i've told most of my interviews i've said this I wanted to play electric guitar like the sound Ernest Tubb had. That was what I wanted to do. Because one reason, it was so recognizable. When you heard the first three notes, you knew who that guy was that was going to sing. Yeah. And that's what made it different. With his voice. Oh, yeah. It's a different, I mean, it, but it matched. And you know, as soon as that guitar hit the first three notes on the kickoff, of his song, that's who it was. It was Ernest Tubb. How do you think that the New South, well, and the Kentucky Mountain Boys too, but the New South, how do you think they were able to form their own identity? Because even though 
y'all went through different musical eras and shifts. Oh, yeah. Y'all yeah. still had a, a very unique sound and identity. Um, how did you maintain that throughout the years? I think uh, part of that was due to I had people in the band that was that listened to different kinds of music like I did. You know, I never listened just to one kind. I liked all kinds. If it was good, I loved it, you know. And I tried maybe to combine four or five different styles into the style of what we were doing, whether it was bluegrass or wherever it turned out to be. And people that was in my band also liked that kind of thing. So I think all of that together combined is what really helped you know, the new, you can talk about boys, which started doing that yeah. uh, before we ever even recorded anything. Uh, we were doing that live yeah. and uh, taking uh, country rock songs and adapting them over to the way we could play them, yeah. you know, and, and see how they would sound. Now, some of them don't work. And some of them do. Were there any that uh, y'all tried live, maybe at the Holiday Inn, that just did not work? That you thought this is going to sound great, and it just it just never came and, to yeah, fruition. Yeah, we did. What were what were some that you just know, I, couldn't really, work? <laughs> I can't remember really. I know back when we were at the Holiday Inn, uh, as you know, you got to do a lot of different a variety yeah. of songs, and uh, and the people <clears throat> mostly it's. It's not way the way you were doing them, but it was the song itself. Yeah. They heard a title, and if that title was in that song you were doing, it don't matter how you were doing it, they liked it because yeah. that they liked the song. And you were playing for tips, yeah. so that was a big part of it too. But, yeah. Well, early later yeah. on we weren't. Yeah, early on though. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. But that was just we wanted to do it anyway. Yeah. You know, just to see what would happen. But uh, when you get serious about it and start getting more into the business end of it, you've got to do it uh, pretty well, stuff, music that you can do and pull it off. Why do you think that you all had such an advantage getting to play at the Holiday Inn so much and test out new material and, and grow as a band? Why do you think that was such a key part in the development of the New South Sound? Well, because... We were in a position to experiment, and by that I mean you couldn't very well do that if you were doing a concert. You have to have that down. You got to know. But in a club or a bar, you 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 was uh, like you fluctuate a lot more in your music. If you made a mistake, who cared? You know, most people didn't hear it anyway. Yeah. Uh, but and that's we were. That's a good learning ground. I think it makes a better musician out of you in in that respect because you're able to try different things yeah. and you don't worry about goofing up too much. You know, I mean, we pretty well had it down. We didn't want to really mess it up, you know, yeah. totally. But uh, if you made a little blooper somewhere along the way, it didn't matter. But you could iron that out later. Yeah. But, you know, that's, uh, I think being in that club like that makes, makes, uh, makes a musician a lot more aware of really what he can do. And you can go out and experiment, go out on a limb with different things. You try, you know, you don't know if it'll work. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. And you know real quick 
what don't work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to keep it in perspective of, of, of what kind of music you're playing, which is acoustic. And uh, I think personally, really, I think some of it, of the things that's been done, really doesn't work. You know, I mean, that's just my opinion. You mean like in the in, in the more recent eras, yeah. different genres of music, okay? Trying to adapt it over with acoustic. It, it, some of it's okay, some of it is not. What do you think is 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 a key part um, in trying to to bring music from outside of the traditional bluegrass canon in, whether it's a, a rock or a country tune? What do you think is a key element that makes certain adaptations work and some not? I think what I hear when I do that is the timing sequence of that song. If it's a weird timing, I mean, I, I call it weird. It's not, but it's a style that people does. You can't pick up on that style and do that. If you're trying to do acoustic in 4-4 four, four timing or 3-4 timing, or if you want to get out of the 6-8 timing stuff, but that's about as far as you want to take it in my opinion, to make adapt it, to adapt the songs over to the acoustic yeah. and the grass venue. Not that it's not a good song. It no. just might not right. sound as right. the right way. To me, certain things, certain songs, once they're done the original way by certain artists and that's their style, yeah. it won't fit your style. Yeah. You, you can't really... Uh, expand on that anymore yeah. to me. I mean, it's been done. So, you know. I used to watch American Idol back in the day, and and Simon Cowell used to always tell the contestants, if you're going to do a song that everybody knows, it either has to be as good or better than the original. Exactly. Or it has to be done really, really different. That's totally right. That's right. And a, it seems that there's a lot of artists that maybe don't think that way. That's true. Oh, yeah. I agree. Yeah. You mentioned that a lot of the members of the New South over the years and the Kentucky Mountain Boys would bring in ideas and they really helped develop that identity. Who were some of the um, the biggest innovators in your group on taking claim of that sound and, and bringing new ideas to the group? I tell you, there's quite a few. There was Doyle Lawson. Uh, he would hear things and come back and say, hey, I heard something we might could do. Let's try it. So we would give it a try. And then Larry Rice, when he came with me, he, of course, had been in California, and he was familiar with people like the Flying Burrito Brothers, the birds. Yeah. Because I'd heard them. Yeah. You like that country rock yeah, stuff. Yeah. But I'd never really thought about trying to do any of the songs. Yeah. But I liked them, yeah. you know. And uh, and then uh, Tony, Tony Rice. Yeah. Uh, he was he was listening to the Gordon Lightfoot and uh, uh, Jim Croce, uh, Jerry Reed. I mean, I'd heard all those people. Yeah. I heard the song. I liked them. And uh, he'd break up and say, hey, let's try it. We might be able to do this particular song. Well, we tried it. Hey, it sounded, it hit my ear. I said, man, that's great. Yeah. We can do this and do it the way we do it. Yeah. And that's how all that happens. I think you have to have that. In a band, people, you, one person, it's hard for one person just to do all of that. And, you know, I brought in some stuff, too. and But they was very much 
influential in far as stuff that I did or we did. Yeah, that has, you have to have some help. There, yeah. there's a. Uh, Oftentimes in bluegrass, it seems that there's two different schools of thought when it comes to being a band leader. There's one where you're almost like a like a taskmaster, and you make the people coming in fit your sound. And then you took a different approach where you let the band sound um, change with whoever was in the group. It seemed you know you would kind of adapt what you were doing based off the talent you, that you had. Well, that's what you have to do. Yeah, you have to use their ability. Or their style to the best of their ability. You can't, in other words, this, uh, I used to tell the guys, and people would wonder after, say, the New South of, of 75, and that was uh, myself and Bobby Sloan and Tony Rice, Ricky Skaggs, and Jerry Douglas. You cannot repeat that. There is no way that you can bring in artists and make them sound like that. Because you're defeating your purpose. If you bring somebody in like a lead singer, you have to let him be himself. But he has to come in to your style of music, but yet with his deal, you know. And I think, and if you don't do that, you're really taken away from what he can do. And that's why we sounded different, everybody that I had. We it was like a different band. Yeah, because if you would have tried to force Keith Whitley or Ricky Watson to try and sing just like Tony Rice, you can't. it wouldn't have There's worked. No way. And you could have you would have missed out on that's, some really cool right. new music too. You know, and I think a lot of people, and sometimes they can pull it off, uh, but very few. And and to me, I wanted the variety. I liked the challenge of trying to do something with a different sound. Right, fellas, it's time to care about your hair. I was just like you. Doing my hair meant hairsprays and gels that would either leave my hair crunchy or greasy. So what would I do? I'd throw in a ball cap on my way out the door and call it a day rather than fool with my hair. Then I found Samson's Hair Care. Their hair pomade is the best, truly. It has a matte finish so your hair doesn't look wet and oily, and it's made with essential oils and other all-natural ingredients. has an all-day hold as well so you can be confident that your hair will look as good in the evening as it did when you left the house. And it smells great, too. Great hair is a staple in bluegrass. Just look at Del McCurry and Larry Sparks. Samson's knows this. That's why they're offering Walls of Time listeners 10% off. Visit samsonshaircare.com. And use code BLUEGRASS to save 10% on your order. It's like Samson from the Bible. His hair was legendary, and now yours can be too. Samsonshaircare.com. Code BLUEGRASS at checkout to save 10% off the best hair pomade you'll ever buy. That's Samsonshaircare.com. Code BLUEGRASS. And now, back to Walls of Time. You hold a unique role that only a handful of people do in this business, where... You have the the role of both a, a legend and, and your love for tradition, but you also are such an innovator. You know, so many people these days will look back at some of your records as you know traditional, but they were anything but when they first came out. They were really groundbreaking and, and pushing the boundaries. Yeah. How, how do you think that uh, you were so successful at, at pushing the envelope and, and expanding the genre while still staying? a bluegrass artist? Well, because of the venues we played, for one thing, okay. is the festivals. 
And I knew when you play the hardcore festivals, they want to hear you do bluegrass. That's simple, you know. And, of course, I would throw in a few other of those songs. But basically, though, I kept more of the bluegrass. And I I guess what you would like say, I guess I expanded gradually instead of trying to make a drastic change, which I figured would have been a mistake. Because I don't think you can do that, pull that off, because you totally have to quit playing bluegrass. You know, when you get into that, then you've got... It's a fine line, then, yeah. yeah, Then you've got to commit, and I didn't want to do that. Do you think that it helped by the time that J.D. Crow and the New South kind of went out on doing its own thing, that you had such a pedigree from your time with with jimmy do you think that helped in uh in your role as both leader and innovator oh yeah definitely yes yeah i do because back then i was hearing all these songs things that i would like to do in the in, you know an acoustic yeah. but you got to have the people right people to do them yeah. you know and for the reason i didn't do a lot of things uh like um the Blanket album, for instance. Well, before that, nobody wanted to do that, and I didn't have the personnel that could do that, and you can't force it. It's got to be natural sounding. And at the time, I had the personnel to do that, to make that change, to go in. I had a kind of a saying. I said, I will. And when you come into the New South, I will go 49% toward letting them do what they want to do. But that's, I'll draw the line. I'll take, I'll be, I'll have the 51%. And you know, I kind of went with that. And that way they get to participate and kind of do what they want to do too. But yet still stay, you know, in the perspective of what I was trying to do. So it had to be kind of a free flow thing there. You know, I think you got to let people, because they're good musicians, and you need to show their talent, not hold it back. That's what I've always tried to do. You mentioned earlier the, the 1975 band and that Rounder 0044 album, yeah. which we both know that it was a, was a shot heard around the world for a whole lot of people. What do you think made that album and that band so unique and so special to where 40-plus years later, it's still one of the most revered records and revered lineups in Bluegrass history? You know what? I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> really, because we were doing that material way before we recorded that. Yeah. I mean, you know, but it wasn't on a recording. Yeah. See, that's the thing. The audience was not hearing that. They were only hearing it the holiday in. And a few festivals that we were working during the summer months. That was all it was hearing that. When we recorded it, then it got out to the masses, you know. And we first, that was our first recording with Rounder. So they really pushed it. See, that goes back to the media. See, if you got something and the media gets on it and pushes, you will notice a lot of difference. And, uh, you know, that band was able to get that, that KET special, which that was right. exposure that a lot of bands oh, were getting was. at that time. That's right, yeah. Do you think, just hypothetically, do you think that if if, uh, if that lineup would have stayed together, they could have gotten even more meteor exposure and more um, bigger opportunities? You know, we'd had to change. 
You think so? Yeah. We would have had to been even more different as we went along. Okay. Because there again, if you stay the same, you're going to go stale. No, I don't think probably the success we had with that one recording, which of course was the first, maybe the second would have uh, done as good, but I would say it probably would not had the uh, the impact that the first album did. See, they always go back, and I'm, I'm the same way. If you think about it, a lot of your country artists, their first recording, they're out, their CDs, or back then it was an album, came out. They never, ever came up with that first recording again. And like, I can name names, but I won't. I, I love George Strait, but I think that first album he did was oh, the best one. You know, yeah. <laughs> that Strait. There's a lot yeah. of other. There's a lot of other examples, you know. Yes, sir. Yes. You can't, you can't duplicate that, you know, because you're hungry when you're first doing that. Man, you're giving it everything you've got. You know, every idea, everything in the field and, and the, you know, and I think that's what makes those first ones such a hit. What were some outside-of-the-box opportunities that uh, that you and the New South sought after that you think maybe helped helped grow your band and your brand? Well, I think, of course, getting out playing a lot of different places, a lot of different venues, mm-hmm. uh, going overseas. Yeah, uh, you get oh, yeah, a couple see. different Japanese tours. Yeah, right. See, I, that helped yeah. tremendously. I remember that speaking with you and Mr. Skaggs and Mr. Douglas, you guys said that the, the Japanese tour in 75 was particularly oh, uh, a whirlwind. That, I'd love to have every bit of that on video. You would not, that was unreal. We never experienced anything like that in the States. Not ever. Could you expound on, on, on what that experience was like and what the, the fans and the crowds, the atmosphere was like in Japan? It was like I was hoping it to be in the States. But it never reached that level, you know. And I can understand why, too, because they don't get much bluegrass music over there and with the good bands like the States do here. What was their reaction like hearing music like that for the first time? It's like when Elvis went on. That's the way I describe it. It got kind of scary there. Oh, really? Yeah, uh, <laughs> with a few of those concerts because I know they had to get us out of there. And uh, because we, it's, it was some scary times, you know, but it was good times, you yeah. know. So now you know how these artists felt that was doing that all the time. You know, like, of course, Elvis. I mean, you know, he, he everything he did, he had, it was just crazy. People wanted to get to him, you know. You've always been a fan of Elvis and some oh, of that yeah. old rock and roll. Oh, I grew up on it. What were some of the uh, the elements from some of that old rock and roll that you applied to the New South? Uh, that one Fats Domino tune that we did called I'm Walking. That's one of my favorites. You know, and, and that was just a kind of a, a thing I had been thinking about for years, you know, thinking that would make a good bluegrass song. But you had to have the right personnel to do it. And when Tony... And Ricky and Jerry came in. I said, that's the thing right here. If it don't work now, it never will. <laughs> so, and, you know, it worked. But now, let me say this. Doyle and Larry and myself were doing that song. Oh, really? Oh, yes. We were doing a lot of those songs, but we never recorded it. 
with the Kentucky Mountain Boys. But we were doing them on stage. Speaking of Larry, you mentioned that he was a, a big a part of y'all doing some of them Flying Burrito Brothers mm-hmm. and Birds types tunes, which I find is so fascinating because there's a whole generation of fans that view songs like Sin City and Devil oh, yes. in Disguise as bluegrass classics now and have yeah. no idea that they came from that, they the don't, Burrito Brothers. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. It really speaks to the the longevity of those recordings, the impact they had on oh, the entire yeah. generation. Oh yeah, I heard. I love those. In fact, I've got all that. I went out and bought the albums. Then I got to meet the artist. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Did you get to meet Graham Parsons before oh, he passed no, away? No, I never got to meet him, but the rest of them I did. Chris Hillman oh, and yeah. all those guys. Yeah. yeah. They were great guys, well, man. Good musicians. Did, did uh, they say what they thought about the bluegrass oh, version? Oh yeah. Of yeah. They used to tell me, said, man, that's the way it ought to have been done, you know. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay. You know? But, you know, and what made their success, because they were different. They had a different sound. Totally. Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done, with features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS, to save 15% off your first purchase. I remember when I was growing up, and, well, I was with Jimmy at the time, and uh, and I think, uh, I forget who it was, but they would uh, ask me, said, you know, you know Flat Scrubs. I said, yeah, I've known them since 1951. And uh, he said, well, you get nervous if Earl comes around, you know. I said, no, I don't get nervous when he comes around because I want to show him I can play as good as he did. And, of course, that's, you know, but but what I'm saying is I want to show him that that I learned from him and I want to do it as good as I could. I didn't get nervous when he came around. You literally uh, learned at his feet, didn't yeah. you? Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, and uh, when he was playing at the television show, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. Or before that, radio. Radio. What What was that like, seeing him play for the first time? Well, that's where I started. I saw him play here in Lexington at the old Kentucky Mountain Barn Dance, they called it. They came in, kind of a fluke thing. They weren't scheduled to play and they were traveling through and was trying to find work and you know back then it was tough in the 50s oh, yeah. and uh they were different uh never heard anything like that and that's when i first saw them on stage we were at this barn dance because my dad and mom uh we usually went every saturday night whoever was there was usually a guest artist from the opry and uh, plus the local. And they had some pretty good local talent at that time. 
And uh, so, uh, of course, Esco Hankins was there. He was a pretty good country artist, had a good local band. Uh, that's when I first saw Uncle Josh. He was with Esco. Jake Tullock. Oh, yeah? He was with them. And they were doing the comedian thing back then. Of course, that was what was going back then. Oh, yeah. See? And uh, so they had, a, and Esco was a great MC. Good for a show, you know. So I learned from him. My thing is, I was lucky. I never had to play with somebody worse than I was in learning. I always played with professional people. And that really helped me a lot. Because I saw firsthand how you would do it, how you, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. And I was around more professional musicians. And I really Especially thought, at a young yeah, age, that oh, had yeah, to help out a lot. That was a big influence. You, you so, probably yeah. didn't, maybe you didn't pick up bad habits like some folks may. That's true. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, but they were there. You know, they were put in front of you. Seeing Lester and Earl for that first time. It's, well, it's like seeing Elvis for the first time, as far as I was concerned. I mean, that just blew me away. I could not believe. I mean, I never heard that. You got to remember, the only time I heard a banjo was the old style, like string band nobody or Grandpa Jones or something like, like that. that. Yeah, but nobody was playing like that. Earl was the first that I saw, and when I saw that, it just blew my mind. And it flipped the switch That's from wanting right. to pick like Ernest Tubb to to yes. to, to, to no, pick but, like Earl. But Struggles. I still kind of wanted to stick with the guitar too, but. <laughs> After a while, I kind of let it go. I really wish I hadn't, you know. But you know, that's. But you were still able to apply so much of uh, that you had learned from the guitar. Oh yeah, to that's, the, that's to the banjo, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, I listened to all the old rhythm and blues things. I mean, I still do uh, the old rock and roll. I still listen to that. I pick up things from it, you know, and the. the older style country music, you know, back, you know, I don't go back too far. I like, you know, in the 50s, 60s, maybe the 60s, it was starting to change, really get really full, good full sound, you know, and uh, and I was into that a lot, and I heard all that, you know, and, I, and a lot of the, I got in some of the jazz, I listened to some of that in the early years. Uh, so I've, I've listened to Western Swing. I really like a lot of that. Oh, me too. You know, much that uh, Bob Wills and Spain oh, Cooley yeah. and Tex oh, Williams. Yes, all yes sir. Stuff. Yeah. Um, do you think it's important for bluegrass artists to listen to non-bluegrass music? Sure. If you want to try to expand, to get ideas, because that's where you get them from. I mean, that's what I do. You know, and then put it together, put it together what you know. They come up with something a little different, you know. I just listen to music in general. You don't draw the lines no, and differentiate. No. No, I think when you do that, you're isolating yourself. Welcome to the first episode of Walls of Time. Uh, you just heard a sit down, part one of a sit down I did with JD Crow at his home near Lexington, Kentucky. I'm here with my co-producer, Ty Gilpin. Uh, how you doing today, Ty? Good, man. 
JD Crow. I know, right? I'm first of all, I'm stoked that we're finally getting this off the ground. For folks that don't know, it's been a year in the making. And we have been sitting on this crow interview for a while and it's finally into the world. How awesome is that? Totally. It's great. It's great. It's so good to hear. I love his voice. I love just I could just listen to JD talk. That 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 raspy uh, smoky voice of a banjo player. You can tell it spent many a night in the Red Slipper Lounge at the Holiday yeah. Inn. You can tell. And dim, dim lights and thick smoke. Yeah. It, speaking of which, did you see the picture that Frank Godby recently shared on his Facebook page? For folks that don't know, Frank Godby, a you know legendary journalist, him, he and his wife, the late Marty Godby. Marty wrote the book on Crow, literally. But Frank shared a cool picture from the Red Slipper Lounge. We'll have to put it on our Facebook page of J.D. and Doyle Lawson and Red Allen and Bobby Sloan and my grandpa Moon Mullins playing in the Red Slipper Lounge. And you said it best, dim lights, thick smoke, and loud, loud music, because that's what that place was all about. Yeah, what a fantastic uh, sets and lineups those must have been in those days. If only we could have been there. We're, we're too young for that, Daniel. I know, we are, unfortunately. Thankfully, <laughs> there's some of those bootleg tapes going around of those old shows at the Holiday Inn. Hey, speaking of which, did you know that there is a bluegrass festival coming to the old Red Slipper Lounge location. No, up in up in Kentucky, when is it? Oh, well, actually, I think you may have mentioned something that's going on in February, right? It's in February. The, our friends at Sam Jam and Rudy Fest are going in on it together. It's called Bluegrass in the Bluegrass. It's a Friday and Saturday festival. It's now a Clarion Hotel, but it used to be the Holiday Inn where JD had all them shows for all them years. Boone Creek, played a bunch of shows there in their early days. They had a residency there, but that Red Slipper Lounge was part of the Holiday Inn. Now a Clarion Hotel. Uh, it's at the Newtown Pike exit in Lexington, but this festival is going to be awesome. Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver is going to be there. Of course, Doyle played the Red Slipper Lounge as a Kentucky Mountain Boy with J.D. Crow for so many years. Uh, Balsam Range is going to be there. Uh, Turning Ground, Caleb Daughtery, Sideline, Larry Cordell, Don Rigsby, Hammertown. And there's even going to be an original Quicksilver reunion. The festival's called Bluegrass in the Bluegrass. But how awesome will that be to get to see Bluegrass at the spot where so many of that historic music was made? That's really cool. It's almost like being able to go back in time and seeing some of those shows again. So I'm glad they're doing that. It's the first year they're doing that. Yeah, it'll be the first year. It'll be February of 2020. Bluegrass in the Bluegrass. It's hosted by our friends at Sam Jam and Rudy Fest and presented by Bourbon 30. It's February 28th and 29th. 2020. It's the first annual Bluegrass and the Bluegrass Indoor Bluegrass Festival at the Clarion Hotel Conference Center North at the former home of the legendary Red Slipper Lounge. It's on Newtown Pike in Lexington, Kentucky. For details, folks can call 859-233-0512. That's 859-233-0512. If you could tell them that you heard about Bluegrass and the Bluegrass from the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast, We'd sure appreciate it. That's Bluegrass and the Bluegrass, February 28th and 29th, featuring Dual Austin and Quicksilver current band and Dual Austin and Quicksilver original band reunion. Larry Cordell, Lonesome Standard Time, featuring uh, Don Rigsby as a special guest that night. That'll be awesome. Balsam Range, Sideline, and more. So it'll be great 
to be there. It's been fun on this Crow episode, part one, to go back in time to the Red Slipper Lounge. I heard they're going to be unveiling a huge uh, crystal statue of J.D. Crow <laughs> at, at the lounge for the festival. They should. I mean, that would be amazing you know just have the claw as a giant you know make it look like the college football <laughs> the, <claw. laughs> the college football trophy of that crystal football yeah. but it's just the claw on a on a five string i loved uh, hearing crow talk about how their time at the red slipper lounge was used to work up such great new material i thought that was particularly fascinating yeah and gosh playing that much that often uh how it got them to be such a tight band and allowed them also to uh, have the freedom to experiment, you know, just so they wouldn't get bored with their own sets, you know, bring in new music and be experimental and uh, how that just shaped what was the New South sound and vibe. Absolutely. And, you know, the New South appealed to so many different audiences. That's something that in Bluegrass today we can learn from that their ability to appeal to a wider audience than just regular old tried and true bluegrass fans was really cool and something that you know bands today like the punch brothers or front country or love cannon are doing as, as well they are appealing to music fans not just bluegrass music fans right and crow was one of those uh, early guys early uh, band leaders to do that i know we talked a little bit about the different members of the band and he, how he invited them to be innovators and bring the influences that they had into the music. And he talked about Larry Rice bringing in the California influence, Tony uh, Rice bringing in a lot of the Lightfoot, Jim Croce songs. Yeah. It was, just, it was neat how he invited uh, people to contribute. And ultimately I'm sure what made their stand there at the, uh, the hotel be so legendary people came to hear great music it just happened to be great bluegrass from this from these uh epic lineups that he had through the years i think that it's really cool to hear how as you mentioned the different influences came from different band members because crow started the episode talking about his time with jimmy martin and how jimmy kind of did the same thing when he was a member he encouraged crow to find his own sound crow wanted to play just like earl scruggs and jimmy told him, you know, there's already an Earl Scruggs. You kind of need to do uh, your own thing. You need to be J.D. Crow and play different. He said, you know, I want to sound different. I don't want to sound like Flatten Scruggs or Bill Monroe. So it really encouraged Crow to be more innovative. And the same thing once Paul Williams became a member of the Sunny Mountain Boys as well, how those two really helped shape Jimmy's sound. The way that, you know, all these years later, Crow let the members of the New South and the Kentucky Mountain Boys shape the band sound as well. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, and when you ask him about different schools of thought, and he talked about uh, using the those band members' style to the best of their ability to help shape the overall sound. So, yeah, agreed. Good old Jimmy Martin. He, uh, <laughs> he helped shape the future of this music for several, several generations. Of course, we'll talk more with J.D. Crow next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast, part two of our conversation. Crow uh, gets into talking about Keith Whitley and Ricky Skaggs and more of a country sound, even looking ahead with advice for new bands. And he also tackles his thoughts on the uh, sticky and controversial subject of drums in bluegrass. So that'll be fun diving into that next time on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Ty, where can folks go to learn more about the podcast and uh, to follow us on social media. Walls of Time Podcast.com and Walls of Time Podcast on 
Facebook and Instagram, right? Are those both the Instagram one? Yeah. What's both. Twitter? What's Twitter? Walls of Time Pod is the Twitter at Walls of ah. Time Pod. They got that 15 character limit, you know. Right. Folks, so glad that you're here uh, for episode one. We're honored to be here talking about the music that uh, that we love. And I've been learning a lot already in the process of making this podcast. Hopefully you are as well. Yeah, so excited to bring this first episode of Walls of Time. And we hope that if you like this, if you have fans of this music or just of music in general, you'll like our podcast, invite your friends to subscribe. You'll subscribe and stay tuned for more great insight and great stories from some of these legends of the genre. We'll catch you next time when we hear part two of our interview with J.D. Crow. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.